Hello, and welcome to Who Runs That? I'm Seth Stevenson. On today's show, we'll be talking about Harry's, a company that makes razors and skincare products. Joining us will be co-founder and CEO, Andy Katz-Mayfield. In our conversation, Andy Katz-Mayfield talks about making a big early bet by buying a razor blade factory in Germany for $100 million, about the ebb and flow of facial hair trends, and about aligning his brand with a more progressive vision of masculinity. After the break, Andy Katz-Mayfield, co-founder and CEO of Harry's. Hello, and welcome to Who Runs That? I'm Seth Stevenson. Today, we'll be talking about Harry's, the razors and skincare company. We are here in Harry's Lower Manhattan offices with Andy Katz-Mayfield, the co-founder and CEO of Harry's. Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Seth. Appreciate it. Uh, So to start, just tell me, where did the idea for Harry's come from? What was the spark for this? So it came from a personal experience that I had uh, back in late 2011. I was in a drugstore. I'd run out of razor blades, um, and I went to the store to buy more and just had a really frustrating purchase experience. They were locked away in a case, and I was wandering around the store. So they that just they always lock the razors up, and they then do I, lock them up. And even when I get the razors home, I feel like I'm like prying them apart with a <laughs> screwdriver to get into the razors. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's uh, well, that's kind of the point. It's like it's a it's a pretty annoying experience. I mean, they do that because they get shoplifted all the time and they get shoplifted all the time because they're so expensive relative to, you know, sort of the, the actual weight and value. Um, so there's a huge black market for them. Um, but it's, uh, it's a little bit crazy. It sort of makes you scratch your head and say, it feels like something's wrong here. And so, um, yeah, that was kind of the, the epiphany I had in the store when I spent $25 for four razor blades. And I was like, there's gotta be a better way to do this. So you've got this spark and, and what were the first steps you took in turning that idea into an actual business? So literally I called up, um, my co-founder Jeff the next day, who was a friend of mine for, um, many years prior to that. And he had previously founded, um, or was one of the co-founders of Warby Parker, um, which was kind of founded out of a similar frustration of overpaying for prescription eyewear. And, uh, I described the experience that I had to him and just as like a guy who had experienced that himself, he empathized and it resonated. And so we sort of started talking about it and we're like, well, what if we could build a a grooming brand that was based on some of the same principles as Warby and high quality product and sort of a differentiated approach to brand and design and, and deliver it at great value. And in differentiating like the feel of the brand, what were some of the watchwords or some of the uh, concepts you had in mind for how you wanted it to feel? Yeah. Um, I think fundamentally we wanted it to be warm approachable more human we felt like the brands that were out there um, were pretty cold and kind of disconnected um at least for me as like a a guy who was interacting with those brands that you know they just they you know there's like sort of razor blades flying over the moon and getting shot out of spaceships and um yeah some of the adjectives we came up with in the early days was like warm approachable down to earth, um, don't take ourselves too seriously. Those were all things that were kind of like part of the initial brief. Mm-hmm. How did you go about fundraising when you were just getting going? So in the early days, we did a bunch of work kind of nights and weekends on the brand. Um, and we had a partner uh, that was helping us from like a creative standpoint. And then we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to go make razor blades, which that that was the piece that we didn't know going in was going to be really hard, but it turns out it's actually really hard to manufacture blades. Um, So 
it took us about, I would say nine months or so from idea inception to kind of do having a brand that we were excited about and proud about and having found this factory in Germany that makes blades that we had a supply relationship with. And once we had those two things and sort of some prototypes of the product and, and, and the brand, um, was the first time we went to, uh, investors, um, to try to raise some money, mostly to actually just pay for like the product we were going to have to make an order ahead of launch. And you, you actually decided to buy this factory in Germany, right? In like 2014, I guess. Um, now that is a huge capital expense for a startup. Like if you're making, if I'm making an app, I'm I'm not buying a factory in Germany to do it. Yeah. Did you have trouble convincing fundraisers that to you needed that much money to do something like that? Yeah, <laughs> uh, we did. Um, so when we when we set out to make the product initially, we we assume we're like, okay, we'll just go to China and source razor blades there or whatever, and you know we'll be off to the races. And we learn that no, it's a really difficult product to make. One of the reasons that the industry is the way that it is, and it's so consolidated, and the product so expensive, is that it's really hard to make the product, and and supply is really constrained. There's not that many manufacturers. So we stumbled upon this factory in Germany that had been around for a hundred years making blades and was a pretty sort of sleepy, um, operation, but very good at what they did. And so we started off developing a relationship with them as a supplier where they would sort of make the blades. We, we designed everything around that, but the core blades that went in, uh, to the product and very early on, we're like, okay, we're going to be completely beholden to these guys because there aren't any other manufacturers really out there. Um, and so we sort of had the idea early on, okay, we're gonna have to figure out how to better control supply at some point. And then, and we actually talked to an investor of ours really early on who um, ultimately wound up helping us buy the factory. He invested personally in just our little seed round. And, you know, we, we talked about this idea. We're like, maybe we should buy this factory. And he asked us at the time, how much do you think it would cost? And we're like, oh, we think like $100 million. And he's like, you guys should probably launch the brand first and make sure it works before you spend $100 million on a factory. Um, but then we did launch the brand and it did work. And we quickly saw the writing on the wall that they weren't going to be able to expand quickly enough on their own to meet our demand. And moreover, we thought the product was really good when we launched, but we knew it wasn't perfect and we thought there were ways we could make it better. And the quality of razor blades is highly, highly connected to the manufacturing process and you can't really drive quality unless you truly own the end-to-end process. And so those two things led us to the conclusion, hey, we do need to buy this thing. Um, and so we went back and and um, went to that investor and said, hey, we're actually serious about this. and. He was like, okay, cool. Like, let's let's actually think about it and and uh, put together a case. And we did. And we were fortunate to have some folks that had deep pockets and sort of long term vision, even though we were early in our in our trajectory. Why is it so so hard to make good razor blades? I mean, we we kind of think of them as this commodity project. At least I do. In some ways, like they're everywhere. There's so many of them. You go through, you know, lots and lots of them every year. What What is difficult? What are the differentiating points of making a good razor blade? And why is it hard to do it? So most of it has to do with the actual blade itself, like the steel and um, the kind of grinding process to get a really sharp and stable, consistent like edge on the blade. And if you were just making one blade at a time, it wouldn't be that hard, but you're needing to pump out billions at, at scale. Um, and it is a 
complicated and sort of bespoke process to get the geometry exactly right on the edge of the blade. Um, and there's a lot of patents around it and, and different, um, you know, sort of process IP. But even if I gave you all of the patents, you would not be able to like replicate it. There's just a lot of accumulated experience of how you do this that, you know, it's, it's kind of secret sauce and there's only a handful of manufacturers in the world that just have that accumulated experience. What, what is the competitive landscape in the shaving equipment market these days? So you've got these two classic brands, Gillette and Schick, that have a pretty large proportion of market share. Um, help me understand what the marketplace looks like and how it's been trending. Yeah. So um, Gillette is still the 800-pound gorilla. Um, They've got like more than 50% of global market share, right? Yep. Yep. And that number, I mean, in the U.S., I, I don't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but their share had historically been, um, above 70% and is now sort of in, in the mid fifties. So, um, they've shed a lot of share to us and, and to dollar shave club and sort of other upstarts, but they're still the biggest player by far. And, uh, Schick was always effectively the, the number two, um, to Gillette. And they were usually a little bit less expensive, but, in some ways kind of just benefited from the lack of competition in the industry um, where, you know, Gillette sort of allowed them to exist for perhaps obvious regulatory reasons, but, uh, but they weren't particularly differentiated. And so certainly from a brand standpoint and, and also certainly from like a value equation standpoint, there was a lot of white space and there was a lot of, I think, latent, consumer just kind of discontent where people weren't running or, you know, walking around every day screaming about razor blades and how terrible it was. Cause it's not necessarily something that's impacting your life every single day, but when presented with an alternative, um, whether it was sort of us or dollar shave club, I think a lot of guys were like, yeah, like why, why does this product cost so much? And yeah, these brands don't really resonate with me. And so, um, I think that's, a lot of the shift has been um, with brands like us coming into the market, providing sort of an alternative. Um, it's just created like a better set of choices for guys. What about the general demand for razors? I mean, are, are people growing more beards and thus shaving less? <laughs> I, re I read somewhere that, you know, the populations are aging and people shave less when they get older. What about general demand trends? Yeah, um, that is certainly true um where kind of being clean shaven every day is um not as much of a sort of expectation professionally as it as it was um and sort of more guys are wearing either beards or like kind of the three day stubble look um which has put pressure on the market from sort of a macro standpoint it's interesting we've actually looked at like a hundred years of facial hair history and it ebbs and flows so if you think about you know kind of post-World War II, um, and actually war was initially how like shaving became um, a normal thing for guys because to put on like gas masks, you had to be clean shaven to make sure there was a tight seal. And then all these guys had gotten sort of used to that and came home and kept shaving. But, you know, in like the 50s, it was like the, the, the company man that was clean shaven. And then the 60s was like counterculture and beards came back in style and then went out of style in the 80s. So those things ebb and flow. Um, certainly now facial hair is more in, in style. Let's talk about your business model. Um, so you started strictly as direct to consumer, right? And yep. 
maybe you can explain for our listeners just briefly what direct consumer means and then why you've now shifted to be in places like Target and Walmart brick and mortar stores. Yeah. So we started direct to consumer, as you mentioned, we launched in March of 2013. And, you know, effectively what that means is we were selling directly to the customer. They're paying us directly. We're shipping to them directly. I mean, through like a third party partner, but um, Warby, but, Warby Parker, the famous example of this, you buy your glasses directly from Warby Parker, not from some eyewear retail store in the mall. Exactly. Um, and the beauty of that model is kind of twofold. You know, there, there certainly is an experiential piece of it in terms of the drugstore experience that I described of like having them, you know, locked in a case versus the convenience of just whipping out your phone and ordering and having like a nice package that's well-designed and displayed show up at your house. Now we didn't invent e-commerce and Amazon's, you know, provides a pretty good experience there. Um, and so I think the power of direct to consumer for us as an early brand was much more, um, while we try to provide a great experience, it was much more about, um, the direct customer relationship and being able to have that one-on-one -on -one conversation. Um, and we were exclusively direct to consumer for basically two and a half years, three years, I guess. And, and we had a few specialty wholesale partners, like I meant, you know, we sold at Barney's and Nordstrom and some hotels, but that was more about just kind of brand awareness and affinity. And, um, and then for us, you know, I think the realization was that look, a lot of consumers still buy at retail, 85% of, of the shaving category still happens at retail. Um, and that's a business reality, but it's also a reality of consumer preference. And oftentimes it's more convenient to buy in the store and some people like shopping in stores. And, and so for us, if we're going to be a consumer centric brand, we need to be where consumers shop and not be dogmatic about like, what's the best business model for us, but you know, be available where consumers want us when they want us. Um, so that led us down the retail path and, um, and we launched at target in, the fall of 2016 and just this year uh, launched at Walmart as well. And it doesn't mean that we don't, we care very much how our brands shows up at retail. We want to help retailers um, solve some of the pain of the experience that I had, uh, you know, in the drugstore back in, in 2011. Um, but we've taken a, an omni-channel approach to the business because that's how consumers want to shop. And where are the balance of your sales now in terms of those different channels? It's pretty evenly split now between our sort of direct to consumer online business and, and our retail business. And I think that that's like a good thing. I think it sort of reflects, like I said, the diversity of, of how consumers want to shop. And it's not that we want to be sold everywhere. Like we want to make sure that our retail partners are kind of philosophically aligned with, um, how we want to show up and, you know, we, we break a lot of rules at retail and, and it, the good thing is it's, it's been good for us and our brand and our performance. I mean, we've, we've, um, you know, just the most recent data that I got from Walmart, um, like we're now the number one, uh, razor brand in terms of like handle sales by volume bigger than Gillette. So it's working for us and, and it's working for them too. A lot of that, those sales are, are incremental and in our ability to like, take a disruptive approach to the the retail environment too. And some of our naivete there has actually been an advantage. What's disruptive? What, what rules are you breaking in retail? Yeah. So some of it is a, a good example. Um, when we think about, um, sort of sales space, um, so 
you know, we, we have our kind of display in the, in the shaving aisle and then, um, in, in retail, what people usually call end caps, the, the sort of end of aisle displays. And that's highly productive space for retailers. And so the rule of thumb historically is like jam as much product onto those end caps as you possibly can, because it sells at high velocity. And when we went to target, you know, our perspective was like, look, we want people to experience and get context around our brand because we weren't super well known at that point. And we want Harry's to be a beacon for kind of this category for Target because a lot of people weren't shopping that category at Target. They would just wander by. And so the end cap that we um, initially kind of proposed to them was like this giant razor, almost like art installation, like diorama um, that literally had no product on it. And their feedback to us was like, guys, we sell product off of these things. You got to put some product on there. And we did. And like, we, you know, but, but it was probably 70% like, you know, design and art space and 30% product. And, you know, people thought that was crazy and it wound up being an incredibly productive end cap and the amount of people, um, the percentage of target shoppers who then were shopping, they call it closure rate, but it's somebody who's shopping in target, like what percentage are shopping the shaving category at target went up because we were stopping people in their tracks with this design, driving them into the aisle. And some of them would buy Gillette. And like, that's a good thing for target too. Obviously it helped us, but you know, if they're buying Gillette, that helps target in their category too. So that's an example of something where, um, you know, we've kind of bucked what's, what was the conventional wisdom, um, but it's actually been beneficial. I've talked to other CEOs that go into retail environments where their product is carried and like rearrange the shelves. <laughs> they, they can't stop themselves. Do you ever go into a Target and totally. fix the shelves? Totally. Retail is is a bit of, of trench warfare and, and particularly stores like Target and Walmart where they just get a lot of foot traffic and it's hard and... And uh, yeah, if I if I happen to be in one of those stores and I see like you know a display knockdown or things out of out of order, I always rearrange it. Uh, so you just launched a women's shaving brand called Flamingo. What spurred that decision, and and what are some of the ways you want to distinguish yourself from the other women's razors that are out there? Yeah, so um, we launched Flamingo about two months ago. Um, it's intended to be a woman's body care brand. It's rooted in hair removal to start. And actually, I guess before I sort of describe Flamingo, maybe some backstory, like in the very early days of Harry's, we thought about, um, you know, should this brand be um, effectively, you know, unisex? Should we sell women's products? A razor blade's a razor blade. Um, and I think at the time, from a product standpoint, there actually are some differences between a woman's product and a men's product, less the blades themselves, but more the cartridge and the handle design just because the areas that women are shaving are different from men and, and kind of the ergonomics of that experience actually are different. And then from a brand standpoint, like the way that guys think about shaving is, is just different from women. Um, and it's something that guys do every day. It's one of the few parts of, of sort of the grooming routine that every guy does. We're not every guy, but mo a lot of guys do um, frequently and, and, and women just think about it differently. Um, and so we felt like to sort of tap into that, emotional part of the experience we we needed you know a brand that was deeply rooted in men and what men want and and a br separately a brand that would be rooted in what women want and so it's hard like building and launching a brand is is hard so it, it was always sort of in our minds but a bit on the back burner and we knew that when we did it we wanted it to be its own thing we did not want it to be like harry's you know for her or 
you know, some sub brand. We wanted it to be its own brand and stand on its own. Harriet's. Harriet's. Yeah. I'm sure it was considered and discarded. There's, there's, we got lots of sort of <laughs> advice along the way. Uh, but, um, but, but, but definitively not those things because we didn't want it to be sort of, you know, uh, the younger sister or whatever. We want it to be its own thing. Um, and, and even, you know, the team and, and, and I mean, the, the woman that really drove the launch of the brand were Harry's employees, but, um, they've been given sort of a ton of autonomy to go build that brand. And I, and from a go to market standpoint, you know, in the early days, one of the, of the differences is whereas guys, when they remove hair, they shave, like for the most part, women remove hair in lots of different ways. They shave, they wax, they use sort of, you know, chemical depilatories, they go laser. Um, and so for us, one of the interesting things was, um, those brands and products in those spaces and, and experiences are pretty disparate today. And, um, we thought it would be nice to have a brand that kind of stood for hair removal more broadly. So for Flamingo, we launched not just with like razors, razor blades, shaving cream, but also, um, facial wax and body wax kits. Um, and, um, the, this kind of success of those product lines has far exceeded our expectations. There's a lot of women that are really curious about those products and, um, we're able to have a conversation with them about that and, and educate on, you know, waxing. And so hopefully we'll be able to, um, tap into something, um, you know, for sort of from a brand and, and design experience standpoint, that's a little bit different from what's out there today. Uh, there's a couple of things we need to disclose here. One is that I know you a tiny bit. We grew up in, in that. We grew up in the same town. You went to school with my sister. And so we we, we've met in the past. We have some mutual friends. Uh, but we also need to disclose that, that Harry's has advertised on Slate podcasts in the past. In fact, I have personally done like a host read of Harry's ad in previous podcast. I didn't actually know that. Um, so, which brings me to an actual question, which is, so I've, I've heard, I've done this host read. I've also heard Harry's ads on lots of podcasts. How do you market? Are, do podcasts continue to be a big marketing channel for you? What does your marketing look like these days? What's effective for you? Yeah. Podcasts are great. Um, I mean, we, the, the majority of our marketing budget falls under what most people would call, you know, direct response or performance marketing, where we're sort of, you know, measuring pretty specifically, what is the cost to acquire a customer, and then we know how valuable customers are. And um, it allows us to deploy marketing dollars, um, relatively efficiently, and, and in a targeted way, and know what's working and not working. And, and that under that broad umbrella, includes like, you know, what traditionally the way people think about digital advertising, whether that's, you know, Facebook or display ads and um, search, um, but offline stuff as well. So radio, podcasts, TV to a lesser extent. Um, and the nice thing about um, radio and podcasts have been great channels for us. And the nice thing about podcasts in, in particular is that you can be pretty targeted from an audience standpoint. And obviously, uh, people know a lot about, you know, who specifically is listening to what, to what podcasts, um, and, and the, um, whether it's radio or podcasts, I mean, talk about a host read, but I think, you know, providing that context around the brand and the backstory and how this came to be, um, and there's obviously lots of different versions of those reads and, um, but providing people with that brand context tends to be a good way to get them to engage and, and then, you know, go to our site and check it out. 
since we're on a podcast, let me dig into it a little bit more. I feel like you, Harry's was sort of early on the podcast advertising bandwagon. Did you, did you spot that somewhat early on? What, what intrigued you about it? Why, why were you on that train early? Um, some of it was just, you know, that there was a lot of growth there and this ability to segment and target. Um, and, um, we've always tried to, you know, the way in general that performance marketing tends to work is that there's new channels popping up all the time. Um, you know, new ways of advertising, new ways to reach consumers. And oftentimes in the early days, there's just inefficiency in in the market. And so for us, like on Facebook, um, this was now back in 2013, uh, as an example, you know, Facebook, the way they used to advertise, you know, you'd have your sort of news feed, but the advertising would kind of be like off to the side. Um, and then when Facebook introduced advertising in the news feed, which is now, I don't know exactly what the percentages are, but I would guess is like 95% of Facebook advertising. It was super efficient for us, inefficient from a marketplace standpoint, because, you know, people are just kind of scrolling through their feed. It wasn't, you know, they weren't attuned to like just tune out advertising. There wasn't a lot of advertising dollars going into that at that point. So, you know, we were acquiring customers for like a couple bucks, which for us is very, very cheap. Um, and then usually what happens is, um, you know, people figure that out a bunch more dollars, you know, comes in and it becomes more competitive. And so a little bit of the game of performance marketing is like identifying those new channels, testing, constantly testing new things and, and learning to, um, try to stay a little bit ahead of the curve. So podcast was another one. We were just kind of probably figured that out a little bit earlier than other people. What can you tell us about where Harry's is as a company now and where you're at in terms of achieving profitability, things like that? We're profitable. The, we will be profitable this year, um, which is, which is good. And, and that's for the first time, the first year that you have been, yeah, profitable? that'll be the first time. Um, and, and profitability historically for us has always been a little bit of a choice because there's usually a trade-off between growth and, and profitability and, and, you know, the way the direct to consumer model in particular works is you're usually investing marketing dollars up front to get paid back over time. So there's some level of, of, of time lag there, but, um, but it is also, you know, I think it w- it's important, um, as a business to demonstrate that, you know, you can grow and make money. And, and there's certainly a lot of, um, emerging brands that have been able to demonstrate they can grow, um, and spend a lot of on marketing. But, um, if you can't ultimately scale and, and turn that into a profitable business, that's obviously not, not a great outcome. Um, so yeah, that's sort of an important milestone for us. And that's not to say we're not going to continue to, to invest and we're still, you know, we'll also grow the business, you know, well over 40% this year. So we're still growing a ton, but, uh, but feels good to, um, yes, to not be dependent on external sources of capital to, to fund our business. Okay. I want to ask a couple of questions about you. Uh, what do you think are the natural strengths are you bring to your role as a CEO of Harry's and, and what are the, what are the areas that you feel like you've had to work on? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I would say I tend to be pretty even keeled, um, and, and, and kind of cerebral, um, and I can hear that in this interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that, well, it, which is, which is both a strength and a weakness. Um, and I think in, in the sense of, from a strength standpoint, obviously there's lots of stresses in running a business and there's lots of ups and downs and, you know, just the way that I've wired and have always been, you know, I tend not to get too high or too low. And I think I'm able to, uh, be a bit of, you know, kind of a steady, captain of the ship, so to speak, um, for the company. 
and not be overly reactive, you know, try to think about things, you know, not just a week or two in advance, but hopefully a year or two in advance. You know, the, the, the downside of that is, uh, I, I wouldn't say I'm the most like bubbly charismatic leader in the world and, you know, sort of rallying the troops and people getting fired up and, um, and, and the nice thing is that my co-founder Jeff and I are pretty different on those dimensions. And so we actually complement each other. Well, you know, Jeff is the kind of person that people would, you know, run into battle for and is, you know, so charismatic and, and everybody loves Jeff and, and kind of just, he leads, you know, almost just with pure charisma. Um, but he also can be volatile, like, like, and I don't mean volatile in terms of, you know, have a temper or anything like that, but he gets stressed out and he gets high and low. And that's what being like an emotional human being is about. Um, so, you know, we kind of have those two-sided strengths and weaknesses, but actually complement each other relatively well in that dimension. Mm-hmm. You have an area on the Harry's website, um, where you talk a little about a social mission and some of the causes you've gotten involved with at a corporate level. So I wanted to ask you how you think about corporate responsibility and also whether you've ever considered becoming a certified B Corp, which is Patagonia has done this, Ben and Jerry's has done this, where you sort of put into your corporate papers that we have a triple bottom line of, you know, it's, it's, it's shareholder value, but it's also our employees, it's the environment. And, and we're, we're more than simply about maximizing shareholder value. Yeah. Um, so to answer the first part of that question, we have always believed that, um, you know, as a business, we have a responsibility to like the community more broadly. Um, and that's a little bit just Jeff and my personal points of view. And if you found a company, you kind of get to do what you want on that dimension. Um, you know, and, and, uh, and I think also a lot of the, you know, people that work here sort of share that worldview. Um, and so in the early days, you know, we committed to 1% of revenue going to nonprofit causes and, and, you know, Warby has a uh, sort of a one-for-one model where for every uh, pair of glasses that they sell, they donate one to somebody in need. That sort of made a little bit less sense in the context of shaving and razor blades. Like in the very early days, we're like, well, we should like have a one-for-one model. They're like, well, that's kind of a weird thing to do in shaving. And so why don't we make it a little bit um, less literal and and kind of more of 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 a bottom line commitment. But we have causes that are aligned to our brand for, for Harry's. So, you know, our brand is trying to, I guess at its core, embrace a little bit more of a progressive version of masculinity. Um, and, and, and that's a little bit in response to the types of men's brands that are out there in personal care broadly and, you know, kind of selling sex to teenagers or, um, you know, just based on sort of like fratty bathroom humor, which is fine. It's worked well from a business standpoint, but just like for me personally, as a guy, it doesn't really resonate. There's a lot of guys out there that doesn't. Um, and so our brand is, I think, tried to just be a little bit more nuanced in the way that we talk to guys and sort of treat them as human beings, uh, that are nuanced and, and, and layered. And so related to that, um, you know, men's mental health is something that we've identified as like a pretty important social issue, which is tied up in all that stuff, which, you know, guys that are sort of forced into a box of like acting a certain way, um, you know, can lead to pretty bad mental health outcomes. So we've aligned ourselves with those types of causes. There's lots of different non-partners, nonprofit partners under that umbrella, but, um, you know, we've in this past year, we will have donated over, um, you know, a million dollars to those causes. And um, we donate a lot of employee time too. So we the, the goal is also to sort of provide 1% of, uh, of employee time. 
Uh, to answer your question on the the B Corp, we did actually look at that pretty seriously a while back. And um, I believe, I know we went through the process and I think we checked every box. We ultimately made a decision not to do it officially. Um, the reason was more of like a practical business one where there's just not a lot of case law around B Corps. And if you want to go public, like what does that really mean? And, and so we kind of decided, look, we're basically doing all this stuff. We don't necessarily need the certification for any like self-gratifying purposes. And that's not to speak negatively of, of B Corp and, and companies that have chosen to do that. And, and, you know, the sort of initiatives behind that, cause I think it's important. Um, but just for us, we felt like, look, we're philosophically aligned. We'll be known for that. Um, we don't need to sort of be a B Corp to do those things. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more from Andy Katz-Mayfield, co-founder and CEO of Harry's. Okay, we're going to move on to our lightning round. Andy, are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Are there any books or movies that have influenced how you think about managing an organization or managing people? Um, yes. Uh... I'm trying to come up with like not a boring throwaway answer. That's the, not the point of the lightning round. I get it. <laughs> so the book that everybody mentions is like the hard thing about hard things, which is Ben Horowitz's book. Um, and yeah, you're the first actually CEO of, I've talked to in this podcast that's mentioned that book. So don't okay, so I'll too. be original, and everybody who says that after me will be uh, will be unoriginal. But um, it's a great book. It's exactly what it sounds like, which is kind of embracing uh, the more difficult parts of the CEO job and making tough decisions and giving people tough feedback and trying to understand that that's not, you know, you can do that from a place of compassion and, and, um, that it, you know, actually yields good outcomes, even though it can feel crappy in the moment. What is the one mistake you've made in the past that you have learned the most from? Um, I think it is, Everybody has advice for you, um, which is often well-intentioned and can often be good advice. Um, so an example for me was in the early days of fundraising, I got advice of, hey, you know, fundraising is all about competitive tension in the process and you have to sort of come in and, and um, you know, sort of be the cool kid and, and play hard to get. And... Um, you know, create this competitive dynamic that gets people galvanized towards action, which is not in the abstract bad advice. It was bad advice for me because it's just not authentic to who I am. And I'm just not able to like do that in, in, a, in a credible or comfortable way. And so I think what I've learned is to try to like filter advice through that, through like a level of self-awareness of who I am. And like, that's not going to change and making sure that fundamentally, you know, I am following a style and approach that is like consistent with, with who I am. Okay. If I told you, you are fired from Harry's tomorrow, you cannot do anything remotely related to what you're doing now. You can't start a new company. You can't be an executive. What would you instead do with your life? I would probably figure out a way to work in like, not in government and certainly not like elected politics, uh, but um, I was a public policy major. Um, I always loved like health policy and, and 
you know, probably just state the obvious, the US healthcare system is complicated and sub-optimized. And so probably figure out some way at like a micro level, uh, you know, whether that was at a think tank or, you know, uh, nonprofit or something like that, try to have some sort of grassroots impact on health policy. Andy Katz Mayfield, co-founder and CEO of Harry's. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks a lot, Seth. Enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Okay, that's it for today's show. Who Runs That is produced by Cameron Drews and Cleo Levin. TJ Raphael is the senior producer for Slate Podcasts. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. If you like the show, please rate and review us in the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can email us at whorunsthat at slate.com. I'm Seth Stevenson. Thanks for listening.